<clears throat> There's no way to get around it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I should have um, scheduled Josue to preach today, so you're off the hook. Um, but nonetheless, here we are. I've got to prepare you for church planning, brother. If you're going to preach through it, here we go. Um, so like, I'm, you're tempted to skip a passage like this, um, but if you read ahead in Genesis, <clears throat> Genesis 37, uh, Joseph's brothers uh, sell him and they traffic him. Genesis 38, Judah sleeps with Tamar. Uh, this doesn't get better from here, okay? So the people of God are a mess, um, which should comfort you uh, and also hope challenge you to not be the mess. We've had enough examples of the past of a mess that we can go, okay, that clearly does not work out when we live for ourselves. Um, perhaps there's someone else here to live for, for their honor, for their fame. But we cannot skip past it. We cannot skip past it. It is to our detriment uh, to skip past this. And so, you know, the thing about expositional preaching, meaning you go through the Bible verse by verse, line by line, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, uh, the thing about that is that you are forced to deal with things that you would not normally just choose. You wouldn't, you're not going to pick a topic and be like, ooh, let's talk about Dinah today. As a matter of fact, uh, anytime I'm, I'm, I'm faced with difficult passages like this, I usually go and I, and I just look out on the internet. Let's just see what the megachurch pastors did with Dinah. And you know what they did? They skipped it. John Piper, 30-something years of ministry, never preached Genesis 34. <laughs> oh, man, but you know what? Charles Haddon Spurgeon did because he ain't skipping it. But he doesn't come from this age. That's from generations past. But we are forced to deal with this. And I'm forced to ask the question, why is this passage here? This could have clearly not been recorded in all of history, in all of eternity. Why is this passage recorded for us? And there's multiple reasons. Number one, it actually happened. This isn't recorded um, so that we can pick and choose, and neither did the biblical writers pick and choose um, in a way that's convenient to tell a story. It was to tell the story that actually happened to the people of Israel as they grew up along the way. That's first. But second, God honors. Listen, y'all. I know we have stories in here. I may not get through this sermon thinking about some of the stories. I won't. Dang it. There are stories of abuse and assault and difficulty that we would not wish on our worst enemy. Right next to you. We can't get past it, though. We are in a fallen, broken world. Absolutely broken. Absolutely fallen. And we can't just skip past it and act like it's not there. It's not helpful to the victims of abuse. And so the scriptures, I may not be able to get through this one. Y'all been praying for me. I can tell y'all praying for me. All right. The scriptures are going to show us that God honors the stories of our wounds. What a great injustice for this to happen to Dinah and it not be written down for us. What a great, it would, have, it would have just added wound upon wound to just pretend it didn't happen. But God honors her wounds so that we may learn from them because it's not just what happens with Shechem and Hamor. It's what happens within the household of God that's an absolute nightmare that we have to unpack so that we can learn from it and grow from it. 
as horrendous as this is, it is here to encourage us. Friends, you are not alone in your sorrows. You are not alone in your sorrows first. But also, you're not the first to experience the sorrows that you're walking through. Sorrow upon sorrow, heartbreak after heartbreak is going to meet you in the scriptures. And you're going to have to figure out, how do I operate with these heartbreaks? Don't just skip past the stuff that's rough. Because we will never learn how to deal with life's disappointments if we do. Instead, let's just dig in and understand, like, the problem of evil is on every page. It's on every page of the scriptures. We need, though, a God who promises that in the end of the pages, he is going to make all things new. He is going to make right all the injustices that we think nobody saw, he sees. So if you're a victim, he sees you. He knows. And if you're one who is in, is, is, has, has been the, the abuser, he also sees you. And he knows. And he will make right all that has gone wrong. We need a God who promises to mend this broken, fallen, and sinful world. We're reminded of that today, yes? On 9-11, we're reminded that there's evil in the world. In this country, that's what this day reminds us of, that things just aren't fair. And we're also reminded and, and, and welcomed into the problem of, like, what is going on? What is going on in this world? How do we deal with these difficulties? And on a day when we are reminded of evil in the world, we have to then be reminded that we are between two gardens, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Eternity. And in between these two gardens, where, where everything went wrong and everything will be made right, history unfolds. And all of its beauty and all of its difficulty, and both will happen and as it unfolds, we are, we are faced with trying to understand what is this all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good God up to. And here's the deal, right? There's, there's three options with the problem of evil that I just want to briefly put before you. Evil in this world are going to, they're going to, it's just, it's here and there's three options that you can deal with. Number one, you blame God and become an atheist. It's a lot of the world these days. Blame him for all the wrongs. It's his fault. You're out. That's one option. The other option, if you are not going down the road of ultimately no hope, and you want hope, you realize there's a need for hope deep in your soul for something to go far beyond the grave and far beyond your life, then you, 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 you look at God and you go, well, why don't you do things different? And we demand for God to do things the way that we would do them. And in our demand, what we might forget is that in God's goodness, he gave humans freedom. In Genesis 2.18, before the fall, he said to Adam, to, to, and then he, she, he said to Eve, you are free to eat of any tree, but not that one. And we humans, because we wanted autonomy, 
because we want it to define good and evil apart from God's definition of good and evil, we, we took the fruit and we ate. And in so doing, polluted not just ourselves, but the entire world. And so the reason why there are abuses is because we love rebellion way more than we loved God. So we might demand, well, why aren't you doing something different? But that's not really the answer. I think that's part of the process that if you haven't struggled through that, I would invite you into that. Because the answer on the other end of that struggle is, will we trust in a God who allows humans the, the freedom to choose, and yet we choose rebellion? Ten times out of ten. And he didn't leave them, though, in their rebellion, and he is still on his way to save us wholly, to restore what was right, to remake this world into something far greater than it ever was. And you go, it's going to be far greater than the Garden of Eden? Yes, far greater because there will be no opportunity for sin in eternity. That will have been taken care of. We have a relationship based on grace and not law. It would be far greater. Man, but in between gardens, we walk and we read. And we come alongside the dinas of the world. And we try to make sense of what is going on. So as we tie up loose ends with Jacob's life, this is the last time that we're really going to focus on Jacob. But we tie up those loose ends, we're, we're, we're first faced with a really hard question, like, what is God doing? That's the question I'm asking, and I'll tell you what he's doing. Not what you would expect. Not what you would expect. We cannot, and we, we shall not expect him to prevent tragedy, because it's not going to happen, not a hundred times out of a hundred. There will be tragedy. There will be difficulty in this world. That's a part of the fallen nature of this world and the effects of sin. It's what Jesus came to make right in our hearts and ultimately will come again and make right for all of the world. Now the tragedy is here. And I'm, I'm left wondering what is going on. With Dinah's defilement, where is God? He's doing what we don't expect. With, with Levi and Simeon's mass murder of an entire city and then the plunder of new widows and orphans that they made by their own hand where is God in those moments when when Jacob's favorite wife which there has to be a favorite wife which is already messed up when when Jacob's favorite wife dies during while she's trying to be obedient be fruitful and multiply, God said right there in Genesis 35. And it's not a, but a few verses later that they're being fruitful, they're multiplying, and she dies. Oh, man, that's what I just lost it at my desk this week. What is God up to? I said this a few weeks ago. My summer is just the summer of loss, so I'm just in this. I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying to make sense of all the things. I hope that you'll try to make sense too. Not of my life, but of yours. Not of my journey, but of yours. Because God has got us all on a significant, unique journey. Where are you, God? What, is, what are you up to? And it, again, is, is not what we expect. So how do we make sense of all this? It's right there in the middle. The hope 
that we have is right there in the middle of Dinah and Simeon and Levi and Rachel. And it's just sandwiched right there in the middle in Genesis 35, 9 through 12. Read with me. God appeared to Jacob. Already God is showing up in the midst of chaos, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of, of abuse. When he came from Padan Aram and he blessed him, that's what God does. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Remember, he's already renamed him once. He wrestled with him. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name unless you forgot Jacob. And so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, oh, here it is. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Look at the promises of God. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, my man. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. What is God up to? He is revealing himself as the all powerful one, the all-capable one, the sufficient one, the nourishing one. And see, we get stuck on El Shaddai with the powerful one because it's, it's comforting to us that we know that he can intervene, but that doesn't mean he will. See, God may not use his power in the way that we would hope, in the timeline that we would prefer, but that does not diminish his power, even though that may be our experience. And I'll bet sometimes, and I know it does, for me it does, I know it does for you, it feels crushing. That he wouldn't swoop in like Thor and just save everybody with his hammer. Nope. Sometimes he lets the chips fall. He helps us pick it up, and that shows us his greater power. He heals, and he redeems, and he moves in mysterious ways. Yes, it feels crushing. I bet it did for Jacob. Oh, cool. So you're El Shaddai. You're the all-powerful one. So where were you, all-powerful one, when my daughter was defiled? Where were you, O oh, powerful one, when my sons went and committed mass murder? Where were you, O oh, powerful one, when my, my wife, my beloved, the one I worked 14 years for, that I wanted to retire with and do everything with for the rest of my life, she's now gone, O oh, powerful one. Where were you? But El Shaddai, El Shaddai rarely does what? We expect him to do when we expect him to do it, and nor will he keep you from every disappointment in this fallen, broken world. And it is not just to show that he is impotent, because he's not. He is omnipotent. But El Shaddai has multiple meanings that I just read for you, one of them being, he is sufficient. Is he enough? See, El Shaddai is all-powerful, but it's also sufficient. He's enough for you. So when life goes astray, is God enough? Or do we need all the things along the way? We'd prefer them, but when those things are taken away, when our children are taken away, when our wives and our husbands are taken away, when that, when that rosy life that we're building is taken away or pushed off or deferred, is he going to be enough? And that's what El Shaddai has come to remind us of. 
He has the power to prevent, but he's even more sufficient to sustain us. He is powerful enough to intervene, but he is sufficient enough to be enough to see you through the valley. You, friends, are not alone, and you also don't have it the worst. You see, whatever whatever framework you want to see the problem of evil through, ultimately, it's got to funnel back to Jesus. It has to funnel back to him. So if you think that God promises you health, wealth, and happiness, you've got to funnel that back to Jesus, who is homeless and poor and, and, and a wanderer and an immigrant and ultimately didn't have a dad on the earth. Joseph wasn't around. You've got to ultimately funnel it all back to him because it's him and his suffering and his journey to the cross that will encourage us in these moments. You see, the greatest injustice and, and, and tragedy and abuse that ever happened was not with Dinah, and friends, it was not with you. As terrible and as tragic as it was, it was with the Son of God himself, the only innocent one who did not deserve a thing that happened to him. But you, want, you know what? He, he, didn't, he had it the worst, but he also leaves you a path to walk through. Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not wrong to ask the question, where are you? It's not wrong to ask the question, couldn't you have prevented this and will you prevent this? I'm wrestling here in the garden. Will you take this cup away? And he didn't spare him. Not going to spare us. It ultimately all funnels back through the Son of God who, who asks those questions and then ultimately it gets us, that prov- it provokes a question in us, doesn't it? What is God up to? That answer is ultimately, I think, most succinctly given to us through a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. They call him the Prince of Preachers for a reason. But he says this, trial is welcomed if sin is conquered. So friends, will you trust in a God who allows you to be hurt so he can conquer sin in you? So he can conquer sin in others. You see, what have you experienced about God and with God through trial? We can't have one without the other. We, we all want Easter, but we don't want Good Friday. We, we, we have to, if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who suffered and died, then also be chastened. The sin in us being dealt with by our suffering. You see, every good dad, if you're a good dad in this room, you let your kid get hurt. There, was a, there came a point where you let your kid stub their toe. You let your kid fall off the bike. You let your kid start dating. Oh, help me. Didn't you? And you wanted them to maybe make a few mistakes in your own household so that when they get out in the real world, the first mistake isn't without you. And if you haven't done that, which I haven't yet, but I'm going there, please let them make mistakes at home underneath a, a, this beautiful umbrella of, of grace. 
instead of great consequence later. See, all of us as good parents, we're going we're gonna to not treat our teenagers like toddlers and hover over them and hold their hand with every little step. Eventually, you got to just fall. To chasten us, to, rec- to, to mature us, give us mercy for others. God is no different. What is he up to? What is the El Shaddai up to? Sustaining you through the valley. Do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're here. My dad is here. And you can, you can threaten me all you want. You can take my body, as Robbie C. says, but you will never take my soul. Because he has come to defeat you and defend me. That's the first, that's the first loose end we've got to tie up. I wish it got easier. The second loose end that we've got to tie up with Jacob is that there is a seep of sin that we must be aware of. Beware of the seep of sin. Do you all remember Spider-Man? Amen. Spider-Man, he's in the convenience store, the newest one anyways. He's in the convenience store. He's, um, he's going to buy some Yoo-Hoo, I think it was, and he doesn't have the, the correct change. And the, the, the clerk is, like, giving him a hard time for two pennies. And then, like, it just is totally discouraging, and he just chastises him and kind of bullies him. And, and Andrew Garfield, who's Peter Parker, of course, is like, fine, whatever. And right after Peter Parker is about to leave, there's a robber that comes in the store he takes the money, he throws the yoo-hoo to Peter Parker, right? Peter Parker walks out, the robber runs past Peter Parker, and the clerk is like, why didn't you stop him? You could have stopped him. And he's like, it's not my problem, man. And the robber runs down the street, and then what does he do? He kills Peter Parker's uncle, Uncle Ben. If you've not seen this, I'm sorry to be the spoiler. Somebody just had their gut taken out from him, I'm sorry. Right? He goes and he kills Uncle Ben. Sin is this way, y'all. If we don't deal with it immediately and we let it go down the corner, it's going to kill us. And there is a, like venom, if I could switch to the other metaphor, like venom, he will take us over. You might think, what do you mean the seep of sin? Eventually it will drown you. What do you mean by the seep? Well, I mean, ultimately, It starts out small, and it ends up being massive. What do I mean? Let's read the story. Let me first refer to something. Jacob was supposed to be headed back to Bethel. You don't know that. He was supposed to be headed back to where God appeared to him originally in Genesis 28. And in Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22, Jacob says, If you'll return me safe to me, to this place safely, Bethel, I'm going to give you a tenth of all that I have. I'm going to give you honor and strength. i got to go out to my, to my fellow countrymen, and if I come back and you give me safe passage, I'll give you a tenth. It's a vow that, that Jacob made. And he stops in Shechem. And at the end of the last chapter, it says that he pitched a tent there, a.k.a. he's starting to live there. He's starting to make a world there. He's starting to make his, his habitation in a place he should not. That small little decision is going to start to seep. In Genesis 34, 1 and 2, we already read it, the Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, 
went out to see the women of the land. She did what now? These are the Canaanite women. What is she doing? You remember the Canaanite women, the women that were a stench to Isaac and Rebekah, the ones that Esau married and created much bitterness in the household of God, and Dinah just goes out to see what they're up to? Jacob knew who the women were, and he let her go. This would be akin to dropping your teenage daughter off at Las Vegas and then just seeing what happens which is also akin to giving your kids unfiltered internet access. At some point, Vegas is going to get them. At some point, the darkness of the internet and the matrix is going to seep in and take hold of their hearts, and then we're going to wonder why they won't have conversations with us. We're going to wonder why it is that they're given to all sorts of depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts when they compare themselves to everyone else that they've made themselves up to be on the internet. I'm not here to rail on that. I'm just here to give us some real-life examples as to what's going on with Dinah and Shechem. Jacob knew, and he did not prevent her from going. Jacob also, in verse 5, now Jacob heard that, he had, that, that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. He did what? Jacob just sat on his hands, was very passive in his reaction to the defilement of his own daughter. I don't know about you, but I've got two daughters of my own, one of them probably Dinah's age. I'm not sitting on my hands. Jacob, who's had his hands in everything, has he not? He's manipulated his father by getting in the middle of it. He's manipulated his brother by getting in the middle of it. He's manipulated Laban. Now, all of a sudden, he's hands off. He's hands off, Dad? I think that's going to fall. Maybe not. Seems a little bit strange to me. But Jacob's passivity is fuel for Jacob and Levi's, uh, Simeon and Levi's passion. Go down with me to verse 30 and 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, uh, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Verse 31, this is Simeon and Levi now speaking. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Because you're just doing nothing. And if you're going to do nothing, we've taken matters into our own hands. Rest assured, leaders of every household, if we sit by and are passive, the less mature among us will overreact in immaturity. We must not, cannot sit by on the sidelines. When Jacob hears of their plundering, he doesn't care about the, mor the moral wrong that they did of, of tricking them to get circumcised, of using the sign of the covenant as a means of manipulation. He doesn't care about any of that. What does he care about? This is going to look bad on me, guys. Everybody around us is going to hear about this. And now we already got past Esau, and now we've got to fear all these guys. I mean, what are you guys doing? Not to mention the multiple, multiple households who didn't have a dad anymore. This is going to be a stink on me. Now, just as a side note, the women and children 
that they brought into their home. You see the seeping of sin, right? You see Jacob not doing what he should do. He should have kept on to Bethel. He should have warned his daughter, Dinah. He should have reacted appropriately with justice, not vengeance. We'll get to that in a minute. He should have, he should have um, ultimately not cared so much about what it was going to mean to him, but instead cared about what it was going to, what actually just happened. You see the seep of sin happening, and ultimately what we find then in the next verse is that the seep of sin continues on now into their souls. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 35, God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God and who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God is graciously intervening. God is basically saying, you need to get out of here before this gets way worse. Go back to the place I told you to go. And what's Jacob's response? Hey, guys, verse 2, the household gods that you guys have, I'm going to need you all to put those away. Huh? The what? The household gods, the ones that you guys brought into the camp that I didn't much care about before now, but now God's telling us to go do something. We got to put those gods away. What are those gods doing there in the first place? How did he, why did he let, let them in? Because sin is seeping into their souls, and they've made all sorts of excuses. They just say, not a big deal. Look, hey, look, we took their husbands away from them. Need we take every source of comfort away from these people? Yes, if it's a false source of comfort. Let them lead them. Let us lead them. So this is just a side note, right? I have to speak about this. Because many people, if you're dealing with the problem of evil, you have to deal again with the God of the Old Testament, which, by the way, is also the God of the New Testament. But if you've worked through the problem of evil, if you've read the Old Testament at all, you know it gets worse. You know that God eventually commands his people to go into the land of Canaan and kill everyone and everything. And you also have to deal with that at some point as a Christian. So let me help you. Is God unjust? Or is he just? And as you answer that, let me paint the picture of the Canaanite, the the Shechemite. After they defile Dinah in the field, what do they say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know that he defiled her, but he wants to marry her. He loves her. Now, if you're the dad in this situation, are you not, like, getting your shotgun? You want to. It's a a very brutal reality of what the Shechemites are doing here. Yeah, I know that that happened, but I want you to understand this. My son loves her. And not only that, but we'd like to take all of your daughters, maybe the same way that we took Dinah. It's no wonder that Simeon and Levi stood up in Jacob's place and go, hey, man, we're going to take care of this. And as they deal deceitfully with the Shechemites, the Shechemites were also dealing deceitfully with the Israelites, Hamor goes back to the gate, and he goes, hey, look, I know they're asking us to get circumcised. That's going to hurt. But if we get circumcised, all that they have will be ours. We'll take everything from them. Read it. It's right there. We didn't read it today, but it's right there. We'll take everything from them if we just go and get circumcised. The Shechemites, the Canaanites were brutal. That's just a picture of who they were. You keep going on in the scriptures, and what you realize is that the Canaanites 
worshipped false gods like Molech. Paul would call them demons. False gods are demons. And they were happy to go and serve at the altar of Molech. And if you do any research on Molech, it was basically a god who was made of clay, who held out hands like this. He was clay. He had an open belly. They would uh, put a bunch of fire in his belly. It would make him super hot. And then they would go and sacrifice their children on his hands. The Canaanites were brutal. They were happy to sacrifice their children to a false god. It is no wonder then that God says, the seep of sin must stop. It cannot come in at all. They've got to go. They are a a stench to my nostrils, and they have to be eradicated from the face of the earth. Israel doesn't do it. Jacob doesn't do it. King Saul doesn't do it. Jesus does it. He eventually eradicates sin from the face of the earth in in, in his sacrifice, which points to, again, what we will ultimately do, not just with our souls and with sin and with darkness, but with every injustice, y'all, every single one. So let me just sit on this for a moment. Jacob's family is in disarray, and most of it can be traced back to small decisions Jacob made that made a huge difference over time. So friends, what sin have you let seep into your home? What have you dismissed as not that big of a deal? What, what is, or you've explained away as part of today's youth or just the way things are these days. Where have you replaced God's priorities with good priorities? And let me just say this, fathers, this is your responsibility. Just as it was Jacob's, let me lean on you a little bit. It is your responsibility. I know you don't read. I know you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't pray as much as your wife. I know you don't feel as prepared. It's your responsibility. You are the leader of the home. And we, you will either lead beautifully and they will follow you, which if, I want, if you do that, I want to meet you. I'll shake your hand, learn from you. Or you'll lead it like the rest of us in brokenness and they're going to follow you into a model of repentance and forgiveness. Or you're going to lead them in passivity. Oh, you know, my job is to make the money. Your job is to make the house. No. No, your job is actually to do both. Fathers, it says over and over again in the New Testament. Fathers, instruct your children. Fathers, don't provoke your children. He's holding us accountable, men. Let us stand up underneath the mantle of leadership that Jesus has provided for us and not shrink away and excuse things and go, that's just the way it is. I'm not equipped for that. I can't do that. I don't do it. The Lord will meet you where you are to help you. I am a living example of this. I would have not chosen this life for myself if not for the scriptures going, hey, dude, you've got to step up. Okay, God expects me to do this. Therefore, he's equipped me to do this. Therefore, I can do this by his power, by his grace, and you can too. Third, tying up loose ends. This is the final point. Do justice, not vengeance. Again, Simeon and Levi take matters into their own hands, and they go far beyond um, eye for an eye, right? 
They take the eye that has been taken from them, and they take everybody else's. They go far beyond. That is vengeance, not justice. The Bible tells us to do justice all over. Perhaps best in Micah 6.8. should come up on the screen. God has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. What does that mean? Doing justice means giving someone their due. And it happens in two ways. You punish the unrighteous, and you lift up the oppressed and the vulnerable. We live in a society that we think hopefully will punish the unrighteous. Hopefully we support that type of thing. It is godly and good. But we also have to be a people that lift up the oppressed and the vulnerable, and we cannot depend on our society or our government to do that. This is the church's job, y'all. That means you. That doesn't mean an organization. That means the people. The Old Testament describes justice many times mentioning the quartet of the vulnerable, or what's known as the quartet of the vulnerable. Deuteronomy 24, Exodus 22, Isaiah 1, many other places, perhaps most succinctly in Zechariah 7, uh, verse 9. should also come up on the screen. Look what the Lord says. The Lord of hosts says, Render true judgments, pursue justice, show kindness. That was from Micah, perfect. And mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow. That's the quartet of the vulnerable. Here we are. The widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. The orphan, the widow, the immigrant, right? And the poor. Being these four types of people and areas of injustice and oppression and vulnerability and marginalized that every Christian needs to get behind. Jesus says, when you fed them, you fed me. When you clothed them, you clothed me. Jesus was behind this cause. It's not, it's not a political agenda, it's gospel kingdom agenda. To uh, lift up the oppressed. So I'd ask, what is your, what's your reaction when you hear, pursue justice for the orphan, for the widow, for the poor, right? Continues on with the immigrant. What is your reaction? I think we go, well, I don't oppress any of those people. But oppression, like any sin is omission and commission. You can probably not commit oppression against one of the, the, the quartet of the vulnerable, but I would bet that all of us, me included, are included in the oppression of those four by not doing a thing. Friends, we're at a crossroads in our church. This is where I'm talking to us now. As pastor, lead pastor, of this church. We are at a crossroads of this church. We have got to gain some ground that we lost out of the pandemic. And part of that gaining ground is, is getting back out of these walls to visit the orphan at Depelchin, to go to India and visit the orphan and the widow, to, to, to go to El Salvador to, to do these types of things, to, to go and visit the poor there, help so, uh, 
create solutions, micro-industries, to be able to help them. To go over to Houston Welcomes Refugees or to an ESL ministry that our friend Aaron Bieber is starting right down the street because those are the immigrants among us. It, it, we are at a crossroads. Listen, I am super grateful that our church size is what it is. Okay, I never, y'all, if y'all were to journey with me in the early days, oh, I never would have imagined that the church would be what it is. I never would have imagined it. Like two small groups, I was going to be content with that and a part-time job. I never would have imagined we would be this, full in a gym, never, never even fitting at Joy Lutheran Church anymore. But your presence has never been how we define success. We love that you're here. Our definition of success is faithfulness to God. And if you're going to make this place your home and you're considering that partnership class on Saturday, we're going to put that, that, that definition right before you. Will you be faithful to him? See, showing up, awesome. But God wants more for you than to pop or I should say plop and pray and pay, as they say. And he wants you to participate. So what will you do when we put the areas of need that we need in our church? Did you read those? Put them back up if you can, Alan. These areas of opportunity to serve, where you have opportunity to do justice. What is your reaction now, now this could be like manipulation, right? Now everybody has to grab their phone and put it in the form, and then you're not going to follow through. We don't want that. But what's your reaction, y'all? Are we sitting idly by? Are we passive like Jacob and just going, well, somebody else will figure that out? Surely someone else is going to do that. You know who's going to do it as you're putting out your phone? Pull up your camera, turn the selfie mode on. That's the person. God wants you to him. He puts it before us, and then I'm going to end by reading the rest of Zechariah 7. I say I'm going to end. There might be a little bit more after that. Look at the rest of 7, 11, and 12. This is right after where he says, Let none of you, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart, Levi and Simeon. And then he goes on in the next verse. But they refused. Israel, his people, his wife, the bride of Christ, refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear the call and the command, the responsibility. Oh, they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law. Hear it, Lord. Got too much going on, Lord. And the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And if you kept reading, you know what the great anger would be? He wouldn't hear your prayers anymore. He just shuts himself off. If you want to do anything, why do you want to hear from me? You're going to hear from me anyway. You're going to do what I, what I want you to do anyway. Why do you want to hear from me? Oh, that we would be a people that would hear and read 
the Word of God, not taking matters into our own hands and not just going out and committing vengeance and anger because the, right, the anger of man does not accomplish the will of God, but that we would be a people that would do justice. Why? Because Jesus Christ was the just and the justifier who paid for our sins. He is a God who pursues justice for you. He is the God who pays the price for justice to be made for you. Jesus, who came for sinners, who came for the complacent, who came for the full-on rebel, took on God's anger and wrath and made perfect sacrifice and payment so you don't have to. And the question will be, what are we going to do with that full payment? What are we going to do with the kind of love that's transformed all of us, that's made us from an orphan to a son or daughter, that's brought us from being an immigrant to someone in his household, that's brought us from someone who's defined as lost, as a widow, and then brought in and gone, no, you're my husband. I'll find everything I need in you. That's that's gone from being spiritually in poverty to now having riches of God's kingdom in our hearts. What will we do with that kind of exchange? Will we sit idly by? Will we turn our shoulder? Will we harden our hearts diamond hard? What will we do with the God who pays for our sins, releases us from slavery, and then commands to set aside our, our all the excuses that we have? And this is where it just pierce through the heart. Our capacity matters, but not so much that we just sit out. Do what you can do. You can't do everything. You're not Jesus, but do what you can do. There is something that we can do to care for the orphan, the widow, the poor, the oppressed, the sojourner. Our capacity, our calendar, our preferences, well, I don't really like them. I don't know if I really trust them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God also didn't trust you when you first met him. But he gave himself to you anyways. Will we use all of these sorts of things or will we follow him into the fray of doing justice, of loving our annoying neighbor or your lovely neighbor, of loving one another like he has loved us? You see, friends, he'll love you the same no matter what. That's the good news of the gospel but you will miss out on the joy that he has held out for you if you don't participate with him. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord our God. Genesis 34, 35 are rough. And sometimes... Tuesday is rough. For every broken heart in here, O oh Lord, remind them again and again of your presence, of El Shaddai who has come to see us through the greatest trials we'll ever have. Of the God who, though we think has forsaken us, has never forsaken us has never abandoned us. 
in the midst of great difficulty, I pray for everyone that has been victim to all sorts of abuse and difficulties at the hands of another, that they would find their ultimate comfort and refuge, not in false gods, but in the ultimate God of all comfort. I pray those that have gone out and heinously done wrong against others, that you'd bring them to repentance by your spirit. I pray that you remind us that no matter if we're victim to all that or if we're the oppressor in all of that, that we are not defined by either of those labels, but that we are defined by son or daughter in the acceptance that is found in your son, Jesus. So as we leave here today, I pray that there would be no encouragement except for the encouragement that comes by your spirit. Remind us that you are with us, you are for us, and you're making all things new. As we respond together in song, help us sing. Help us sing praises to a God who sometimes feels far off but promises to be near, especially to the brokenhearted. Who, who, those that, that don't have their husband or their wives anymore. They don't, they don't have a dad or didn't have their, their, their mom growing up. They got one now. Remind them of your goodness. When the darkness hits this week, remind them that you are the God of light. And in you, there is no darkness at all. And the darkness has not overcome you. Therefore, it cannot overcome us. In the deepest, darkest hours of our weeks, we'll all face them this week. Remind us that you are there. You are our comforter. You are our sustainer. You are our savior. By the power that is found in the blood of Jesus, you will help us overcome. Even if it means just going to sleep so you can find new mercies for the next day. Oh God, our God, help us. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.